This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Hi, this is Kevin Murphy. Welcome to Ethics Lab Essentials. We talk about informed consent in this very idealized way in, uh, in articles and in publications, but in the reality is it's, it's just a much messier concept. Ethics Lab Essentials highlights topics and guests that are foundational for members of healthcare ethics committees. Each podcast episode is led by expert contributors and equips ethics committees with better knowledge, leading to practical results. Informed consent is one of the foundational ethical principles in healthcare that supports patient autonomy, or stated differently, the patient's right to self-determination. More and more, the standard for what clinicians should inform patients about the risks, benefits, and alternatives of treatment are no longer determined by what a responsible body of physicians deems important, but rather by what a reasonable patient deems important. What is needed to meet that goal is a collaborative communication process between clinicians and patients that integrates the best evidence available with the patient's values and preferences to promote high-quality healthcare decisions. And in the United States, at least half of the states have adopted the reasonable patient standard regarding informed consent. Today, our lead contributor is Rochelle Barina, Vice President for Mission Integration at SSM Health in St. Louis. Rochelle will walk us through this important principle, and she will be in conversation with two nationally known guests. Rochelle, thanks for being with us. And would you introduce us to your guests? I'm here with Dr. Jenny Heil and Dr. Kahan Parsi. I'd love for us to start by each of you introducing yourselves. Jenny, would you mind by beginning? Hi, thanks, Rochelle. Uh, I'm Jenny Heil. I'm the Director of Ethics at Mercy Hospital in St. Louis, and I cover a couple other hospitals in our system as well. Great. Thanks, Jenny. Kahan, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Kahan Parsi. I'm a professor of bioethics at the Nyswanger Institute for Bioethics at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, I'm also the director of our graduate programs, and I'm also one of the ethics consultants that provides ethics consultation at Loyola Hospital here. Thanks. Well, great to be with both of you today. We appreciate your time, and we are eager to learn from you and share your wisdom and insight with our audience. Our fundamental topic today is informed consent. Can you give us sort of a high-level summary of what we mean by informed consent? So basically, we think about four different elements within informed consent. The first one is disclosure. Um, Is the patient being told uh, the risks, the benefits, and alternatives to what's being proposed? The second element would be comprehension or understanding. Is the patient able to understand what's being told to them? Um, Is it being given to them in language that they understand? Um, And are we checking for that, that comprehension? Um, in terms of can they tell us back what their options are and why they're choosing one over the other. Um, And that leads into the third element, which would be the voluntariness um, or a non-coerced choice. So the patient's able to understand the information um, and they're able to explain why 
that they're accepting or choosing one um, option over another. Um, and then I guess the underlying, probably the most important uh, element is that the patient is of sound mind, is capable of medical decision making, um, the type of question that we're asking or decision that we're asking them to make. My experience is that sometimes capacity can overshadow the other elements of informed consent. And so certainly capacity is something we can continue to talk about today. And I I appreciate, Jenny, you pulling out those other three elements, disclosure, comprehension, and voluntariness. And I think it's really important for our ethics committee members to keep all four of those in mind as they work through cases and patients wherein there are issues with informed consent. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I think we focus so much on disclosure. I think it's very one-sided in the sense that if we just share this information, then we've done our job. We're we're meeting our ethical requirements, standards with regards to informed consent. And and it really the the other elements that you mentioned, uh, certainly comprehension, I think that's a big, big issue. We touched upon it in a in a recent article that I wrote and and I think because of issues related to health, literacy, education, socioeconomic status, all of that goes into how well do patients truly understand the information that's being shared. And I think that's, that's an ongoing issue. That's a real challenge. There are, there's this movement towards developing decision aids for patients. But I think, that's the, I think that's really the big sticking point when we're talking about informed consent, that um, you know, capacity is big, disclosure is big, but really this issue of comprehension, I think, is probably the, the biggest issue that we you know, really haven't really done justice, so to speak. Very well said, Kehan. Jenny, anything to add? I just endorse that wholeheartedly. I think there are many cases where there's language that we are so used to using in healthcare and we we try to bring the language down to a seventh grade level on our written consents, but even in our discussion, there can be so much confusion about the care that someone's getting. And I think one of the, the real obvious ones that I've seen is when a patient's getting radiation for palliation and they believe it's going to cure their cancer. And it is so heartbreaking to to deal with patients and families who are under the impression and I don't doubt that it was explained to them that it was palliative radiation, but did they understand what palliation meant? Did they understand that this is to address their symptoms, their pain, and is probably not going to affect their, the outcome of their cancer, or not probably will not affect the outcome of their cancer, other than make their symptoms a little less severe? Can you tell us about an ethics consult that you've been involved in centering around issues of informed consent? Yes, thanks, Rochelle. I think we have a lot of cases that actually do have issues of informed consent. It's a pretty basic concern we have in ethics, but I think it's it's pretty prevalent. And one of the, the type of situation I see most often is when we have it's usually an elderly person who still has decisional capacity. And yet the families, often the adult children are talking over the patient. And I think most of our providers, our healthcare team, have, have recognized situations like that and are, are very able to advocate for their patients. There can be particularly sticky questions where we have a patient that 
it might prompt some other concerns about the patient. So imagine the case where we have a a 91-year-old who's living on his own independently, lives with his wife. They're both um, very healthy 91-year-olds, but they're involved in a motor vehicle accident, and it's a rollover. And so this gentleman sustains pretty severe injuries, mostly broken bones. He's got fractures in his vertebrae, fractures of ribs, and so he, he's really in a lot of pain. But he's there, he has moments where he's very lucid. He was on the ventilator. He's on the ventilator when he comes in, and they're able to extubate him. And he's able to participate in his discussions. His, his capacity tends to wax and wane, but there are still plenty of time where he is very lucid. His pulmonary status is probably affected by the fact that he's not mobile, he's bed-bound, but he does meet liberation criteria from the ventilator, so he is able to be weaned from the ventilator. During the time where he's most lucid, the care team, the physician, talked to him about what he would want if his pulmonary status would again decline and he would need to go on a ventilator. He was very adamant that he did not want to be reintubated. And yet, when the adult children come in and, and, and imagine two adult daughters were just very persuasive to, to him to want to continue to try to fight and convinced him to accept reintubation when he had clearly not wanted that. So, I think in those cases, we're, we're often very concerned when a, a patient who really does have capacity somehow loses their the voluntary nature of their decision, that there's uh, definitely a sense that there can be some coercion going on with their loved ones. And they often capitulate to what their loved ones want. And so they'll tell the healthcare team, okay, you can go ahead and reintubate me. Those kind of cases can be really hard on the patient as well as the healthcare team. Thanks, Jenny. That is a really interesting and illustrative case. And what's interesting to me is that There are a number of different factors that are at play here. You noted the way in which the patient's capacity kind of waxes and wanes. You also noted the way in which family members can influence the patient. And all of those things are are relevant to the patient's ability to consent in a free and informed capacity. Do you have any further thoughts on, on how this case might speak to a new ethics committee member and what takeaways they might get for informed consent? Well, I think it's illustrative that just because these can be such ordinary situations, and when we get into other cases of um, informed consent, when we think about what's being disclosed and how it's being disclosed, I think the, the first time ethics committee member needs to recognize that there's different elements uh, to informed consent and they can these issues can show up under different areas. And I think in terms of, if we're talking about the voluntariness of the decision, just think about the patient. Is this a case where the patient is able to make a decision on their own? Do they have the requisite capacity to make the decision? And if so, are there factors that are maybe overly influencing their decision that doesn't seem to be what they're saying when they are able to speak to the healthcare team alone? 
And I think for first-time committee members, it's it's to recognize these things, but also to support our frontline staff to not only be able to recognize those, but to be able to sort of raise their hand and say, I might need help with this situation because I think this patient's being coerced into doing something that he does not really want to do. Well, I was just, you know, listening to this case, I think, and as Jenny mentioned, this is a case that you could definitely imagine happening at, at any number of settings. And, you know, I think obviously the, the first place to start is capacity. Does the patient have capacity? That seems to be a non-issue in this case, even though it's a an elderly patient. Uh, what I think is interesting from the perspective of informed consent is that, you know, we typically traditionally think of informed consent as this process is dynamic between physician-patient and that it's this dyad between physician-patient. The physician relays information, shares information, the patient receives it, interprets it, tries to understand it, and then makes a decision. In reality, however, when we're treating patients, oftentimes they are accompanied by loved ones, by family members, by other people that are important. And, and these other people are usually trusted individuals, people that, you know, are, we're looking to for guidance. And so I think it's important to think about that, even though we think of informed consent in this kind of very idealized way and this very kind of clean way, the reality is, is that uh, when we're being treated for whatever the case may be, it can be something very mundane or something more serious. As in this case, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, it's a dynamic process. We're including other individuals. And so, patient in this case may be pressured, but also the patient, you know, I'm a middle-aged person. I may be deferential to my spouse in trying to make sense of what's happening. So um, so I think it's just important to kind of, uh, you know, be aware of that, that, you know, th- we, we, we talk about informed consent in this very idealized way in, uh, in articles and in publications, but in the reality is it's, it's just a much messier concept. Thanks, Kehan. That's a great point. Jenny, any thoughts or reactions to that? Well, I think that's a great comment because I I think, and and when I mentioned that to give uh, the frontline staff the ability to sort of raise the question, I do think that informed consent is a process and there's many people who are involved in the situation that adds information to the decision that the patient and or family are making together. And, and yes, sometimes it's very reasonable to be uh, deferential to your family members. And I think that's what this man in this case would be doing. He loves his daughters. They don't want to lose him. And he's been very independent, been very healthy. But I think it, it really does point that there it is a process and there are many people that can contribute to disclosing information or supporting the patient and family through the process. And yes, it is a very messy reality sometimes. Mm-hmm. Jenny, I think the case that you offered also helps us pull out the many different parts of informed consent. And given that it is complex and given that we do have a tendency to idealize informed consent. You know, what you've done is to help us see that capacity is one part of consent. And in fact, uh, we have another great podcast on that topic that dives into the topic of capacity much more deeply. Additionally, beyond consent, a patient's ability to act voluntary is, is another big element of consent. And as we ma- navigate challenging cases, 
and as our ethics committees members do so as well, you know, pursuing improvement and trying to support our caregivers as we navigate these muddy waters, some improvement is significant. And, you know, for a patient in a scenario like the one you've shared, Jenny, you know, this is a patient who we might not be able to, you know, achieve this idealized version of consent. We won't, that's okay. But with support and conversation and walking with them through this decision-making process, we might be able to help improve it. Jenny, your patient narrative, I think, really demonstrates to us the complexity of informed consent. And that complexity comes out of a long history. This this is a long-standing and foundational principle in bioethics and in good medical practice. So, Kehan, can you help us understand a little more about that history what are the foundations of informed consent and how did we develop this doctrine? Sure. Well, it's it's an interesting history, I think, because we we think of informed consent as so central to modern medicine, modern healthcare. It's uh it's really the heart and soul of bioethics if you think about it, but it's it's a relatively recent vintage. There's really no mention of informed consent and the Hippocratic Oath. There really wasn't no mention of informed consent in the original AMA Code of Medical Ethics in the mid-19th century. It really only started to take hold as a very developed and integral part of medicine and really until the 20th century. So uh, the first time we we hear about consent, per se, is the, the famous Schloendorf case uh, just practically every article that talks about informed consent, it's just uh, obligatory that you mention the Schlorendorf case. Um, and so the Schlorendorf case is that famous case that was authored by Judge Cardozo, eventually became a Supreme Court justice, but at that time he was a judge in the New York Court of Appeals. And basically the, the, the language that he used was that uh, every adult of sound mind who has capacity, he didn't use the word capacity, but has really the right to make medical decisions for himself. And that was this first notion of uh, of consent, of, of the notion that a, a patient has this right to make decisions for him or herself with regards to health care. These are challenging standards. Uh, you could argue both of them are challenging, but, but certainly the reasonable patient standard is even more challenging for a physician because that physician has to kind of try to hypothesize, well, what would a reasonable patient want to know in this set of circumstances? And I think a lot of clinicians struggle with this. And beyond these standards, there's just also the issue of awareness. When I talk to different medical audiences and I ask them, do you know what standard operates in your state, in your jurisdiction? Very few clinicians know about these standards. I I live in a state where it's a reasonable physician standard. And my impression is a lot of my colleagues don't even know about that standard. So so I think even though we have these well-developed standards that emerge through courts, informed consent has, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is very much this kind of idealized concept. And and now we're moving towards this new era where it's not just a physician sharing information, disclosing information, talking about the risk benefits and alternatives of treatment. But we're getting to the point now where some are arguing, well, informed consent has to encompass other kinds of information. Should uh, physicians tell patients about health outcomes or about 
uh, the number of times the physician has done a certain procedure. So, so now informed consent is becoming, I think, much potentially much broader than just risk benefits and alternatives of a proposed treatment, which I think has been for the last several decades the the prevailing notion of informed consent. So that that kind of just gives you, I think, a, a kind of a thumbnail sketch of of informed consent with regards to clinical treatment. But as I mentioned, the the whole world of research, you know, deserves its own separate history. But hopefully that was helpful. Very helpful for me. Kahan, as we continue to improve in areas like healthcare data analytics and health outcomes research, as we come together with new models and care delivery, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how you think that informed consent might change or what kinds of considerations our ethics committee members might want to be sensitive to in the future. Well, uh, historically, informed consent really has been a process between physician and patient. And I think what we're seeing and what I've proposed um, in in my writing is that I think patients, because our, our focus now is on patient-centered medicine, I think patients deserve to at least have access to information that may potentially affect their decision-making beyond just a proposed treatment. So if a patient is in a given institution, organization, hospital, I think actually there's a argument to be made that informed consent is not just the responsibility of the physician, but really it's more of an organizational responsibility of the hospital or the health organization or the health plan or health system that it's incumbent upon them to share information that could potentially shape or influence a patient's decision with regards to their care. So if there is relevant health outcome data or patient safety data, that that should be shared with patients. And even though a lot of this information is available through a variety of different means and journals and, and websites and so forth, I think patients often uh, you know, don't know how to access it, don't know how to access it efficiently. And so I think there's an argument to be made that um, in the next several years, the next decade or so, that you know we're going to see more healthcare organizations take it upon themselves to share this information in a way that's accessible and meaningful and um, and hopefully useful to patients. Thanks, Kehan. That's really interesting. Jenny, any thoughts from your experience based on Kehan's insight? Uh, yes, and I really like that idea. And certainly, I don't think many f- places have risen to that level of uh, really developed. But one of the things I've noticed over the years is when we have patients who are at the point where the physician, everybody's at a decision point, are we going to do a trach and a peg on this patient and move them on to a long-term acute care hospital with the intent of weaning them from the ventilator? And it's it's sort of a discrete decision, but there's so many decisions that will be, need to be made down the road, depending on whether they successfully wean that patient or not. And I, I've noticed that our physicians, if you look at it, just a physician-patient discussion, and usually it's the physician family at that point, the physician often doesn't know all the ins and outs of what facilities exist where. And I'm in St. Louis, and many times if it's a vent-dependent patient, they have to go out of state if they are not able to be weaned from the ventilator. And so I think when, when families are at really difficult points of making decisions, crucial decisions, 
and they don't have that additional information, I think that we're doing them a disservice. And so I think that really does sort of support Kahan's notion of it really is an organizational responsibility. And, and we need to be clear about who is the person who's going to impart that information or is the social worker who can give them the information on, on facilities and subsequent placement, are they part of the discussion with the physician and the family? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I think gone are the days that, that patients are just interacting with one physician or one specialist. I mean, you're dealing with a whole team of people and it's, it's probably too much to expect from one professional you know, even a physician to know all of this. And, um, you know, we should rely on the expertise of like social workers, case managers. I mean, there's so many other people that can help in this information sharing process and really more kind of like a, like being like a guide, uh, almost mm-hmm. like a patient navigator. So, yeah, I think there's, uh, there's some great opportunities because at the end of the day, we're really trying to serve the needs of our patients and, and, and do it in a way that's helpful. And so why not rely and, and, you know, elicit the expertise of other people that can do it. So some of our patients end up refusing treatment or wanting to refuse treatment after going through a re- robust conversation and really being informed over time about the risks and the benefits. Can you speak a little bit to this notion of informed refusal as it might be similar to informed consent and then maybe some ways in which it could differ slightly? Sure, I think you know, for, for those of us in ethics who do clinical ethics, I think informed refusal is it's incredibly important. It, it gets to the heart of this entire matter, which is respecting patient autonomy and respecting patients' decision-making authority. And so whether people accept proposed treatments or refuse proposed treatments, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're really trying to ensure is that we respect patients as persons. I mean, that's really the, um, the essence of it. But with regard specifically to informed refusal, I think from the perspective of a clinician, there may be the concern that a patient may not truly understand the risks of refusing a proposed treatment. There also may be the notion on the on the opposite side that a patient can refuse any and all treatment, and we we that's a given both ethically and legally that an adult patient with capacity can refuse any kind of treatment, but that doesn't mean necessarily that a clinician should stop engaging with the patient and trying to ensure that the patient understands. So I think it's a tough balance, I think, for clinicians, because on the one hand, you want to avoid paternalism and you also want to avoid appearing, you know, callous or non-caring. I think, I think uh, the, the appropriate response would be if a patient refuse, say, for instance, a, a potentially risky treatment, surgery, but that has high benefit, then that's something that I think demands engagement from the clinician as to why is the patient refusing, uh, what's going on. And so I think that is something that requires just more discussion and more engagement and more conversation. Thanks, Kehan. Jenny, anything to add? I agree. I, I think that sliding scale of whether it's for consent or refusal, if, if someone is refusing a high benefit, low risk procedure, then it is incumbent upon us to really investigate 
is this decision consistent with their values, how they live their life? You know, the old joke is when do you question your patient's capacity? And it's when they disagree with you. And I I think that, you know, that's a joke. Um, Sometimes it's a bad joke. But I, I think it points out that we really should be looking at patients' capacity as a baseline for having these discussions. And that can help shape the disclosure and the verifying the comprehension and the understanding. So if somebody, as, as Kahan said, if somebody is refusing a high benefit, low risk, then there, there really is a solid case that needs to be made. And it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are sort of trying all the different options with the patient. This is something I discuss with my with my medical students. I, I you know I ask them when you apply to medical school, no one on their application says, you know, I I went to medicine to leave people alone to you know basically respect patient autonomy. I mean, no one they, they always say I, I go into medicine because I want to help people. Right? It's a very strong beneficence model, and I think that's the the tension is that you know on the one hand we want to respect patient autonomy, but people don't go into healthcare to not help people. And I think that's professionally, from the standpoint of profession, I think it's a it's a hard it's a hard balance because, especially as as we just discussed, if there's something that is potentially very beneficial to the patient with very very low risk, most of us are going to find that very puzzling. Uh, of course, if it's high risk and low benefit, then you know obviously we we understand that. So I think that's part of the. It, it really is. Um, it gets to this kind of ambivalence about the ethos of medicine. The, you know, that people go into medicine to, to care for people, to take care of them. And when someone is refusing care that really truly can benefit the person, that really, I think, troubles clinicians. Great. So we've touched a lot on patients who make decisions for themselves. Are there times when the standard for a surrogate to either to consent or to refuse is different than if a patient were deciding for himself or herself? I can speak to that just from, from where I am in the state of Illinois, because, in, this, in fact, this just came up in a recent MICU case conference where we talk about some challenging cases. But for instance, in, here in Illinois, if you're a patient with capacity, you can infuse any, any and all treatment, right, ethically and legally. But when it comes to a patient who lacks decision-making capacity and who is, um, you know, potentially in an end-of-life situation, um, the law here requires that the patient have a qualifying condition, meaning they have to be either terminally ill or they have to have permanent consciousness or an irreversible condition. So the law has created these qualifying conditions as a safeguard because it's basically telling surrogates, look, you can't make decisions for the patient in withdrawal of life decision or life, uh, life-sustaining treatment decisions unless one of these qualifying conditions. However, if you were a patient with full capacity, you could, you could do it regardless of whether you were in a qualifying condition or not. So I think that's an interesting distinction that our law, our state law, makes with regards to the authority that the patient him or herself has versus what a surrogate has. Thanks, Kehan. Jenny, any reflections more generally or for your state? Right. So in Missouri, we don't have a surrogacy law. We don't have a hierarchy. And so I think when we have family members who are identified in patients who have not named a durable power of attorney for health care, but we do have family members or even very close friends who know the patient and know their wishes, 
we, it, it's kind of those decisions that are on the margins. And so if the surrogate is either refusing or asking or consenting to something, or actually usually they're asking for something that's on the margins of what those re, morally reasonable off options, I think that's where we have to have a higher standard so that if there is a patient who is going to be permanently unconscious or is imminently dying and the surrogate is asking to do things that are outside the bounds of that, we might be getting into a different topic of, you know, request for inappropriate medical care. But I think those kind of requests or decisions at the margins, especially when it involves life and death, are usually taken much more seriously, and there is really much more discussion and really a higher standard there in terms of understanding and and really more probative of what the patient's values were and does this fit in line with that. In those sorts of situations, Jenny, do you have any very practical suggestions about how ethics committee members might help navigate the, the challenging discussions or tensions that might, may emerge? Sure. I, I think it, uh, our best partners in this are the palliative care service. And I know not every hospital has a robust palliative care service, but usually those are probably the best partners in terms of walking surrogates through these very difficult decisions, but also being able to show them really what the prognosis is and what the likely outcome and what uh, the implications of the decisions that they're going to be making. Um, I think we talked earlier about showing them what decisions will be down the road in terms of placement, in terms of services that that patient can have, and but always trying to make sure that it comes back to that individual patient what they knew of the patient, what they knew of their life, their goals, their values, so that those inform the decision. Thanks, Jenny. One of the cases that I'm often reminded of, and I think this happens many times in oncology, is the patient is presented with various options. They might be at a certain stage of the disease progression, but you know they will relay to either the palliative care physician or maybe ethics, if ethics is involved, that, well, I was given the option of chemo plus radiation or chemo by itself, or I could just do nothing. And when I hear patients say that, number one, I think it does, we never just do nothing. We're always caring for the patient. And I think that example really illustrates this lack of full disclosure in terms of really what, when you don't choose one of the aggressive means to treat your cancer or whatever your underlying illness is, what is another option that we have for you? And I think we're getting much better about that with more and more palliative care programs starting. But when I still hear that, I think there there are still some residuals of that out there. Thanks, Jenny. Kehan, anything you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as far as the informed consent, I mean, we we often focus on you know, what's going on here in the inpatient setting. Um, again, we focus a lot on issues of capacity. Does the patient have capacity? I, I think, you know, also if you're thinking about in the outpatient setting where there's, you may or may not be, I mean, there may be an issue of capacity, but probably not. You know, I can think of, 
you know, a case where, say, a, a patient is being seen and diagnosed with, say, a serious cancer, and the the, the patient's emotional response is you know, very distraught and very upset. And, and so the, you know, the question is, you know, is a person's emotional state, is that something that somehow compromises a person's uh, ability to understand? And I share this, you know, that's just a very quick sketch, but it's, uh, it, it gets this issue of, you know, when I ask my students, if a patient is distraught or upset, does that necessarily compromise a patient's ability to understand the information that's being shared. And, you know, my students will, more often than not, will say, well, no, I mean, of course not, because getting bad news doesn't necessarily mean that your ability to understand is compromised. However, I think it's important that when information is going to be potentially upsetting to a patient, that that gets shared perhaps over a couple of of visits or or making sure that the patient has the opportunity to follow up with additional questions and to ensure that the clinician shares information and makes it clear what what is going on and so so that's one kind of you know I would say very common scenario in the outpatient setting where someone gets potentially bad news about a diagnosis and whether their emotional state can potentially compromise or even undermine their ability to understand what's going on. It's kind of related to the notion of whether someone who is depressed, are they ability to, you know, are they able to understand? And it gets, again, back to that capacity issue. So, um, but I think that's just, you know, one common, very common scenario that I share with my students just to get a sense of, you know, does someone's emotional state necessarily affect their ability to comprehend and understand the information that's being shared with them? Thanks for that example, Kehan. And I think it's really a good illustration of why it's important to keep all of those different pillars of informed consent that Jenny explained in mind. In my experience, I hear a lot of our ethics committee members um, ask a question like, well, can this patient really consent? When there are questions of any sort, whether they're capacity questions or comprehension questions, your example, I think, really highlights the importance of encouraging our ethics community members to be precise. You know, one patient might have uh, an issue of capacity, but as you said, you know, you might have a patient who's just really overwhelmed, and certainly they have capacity, but the magnitude of the information they got may have compromised their ability to comprehend. So for our ethics committee members, one very practical tip might be to really focus on asking precise questions. So in our last couple of minutes, from your point of view, do you have any thoughts on what those most important points to summarize might be? I I guess part of uh, the challenge I felt when you asked me to do this and I started, you know, kind of going back and reviewing informed consent. It just, it, it seems so basic. And yet, and I was thinking we're dealing with so many other more sophisticated problems or more involved problems. But the more I thought about it, it it's just because it is so basic to what we do in ethics. And it's so important for our patients as well as our healthcare team. 
that there's different elements to it and really trying to give each element its due and realize that there are different ways that these elements can be compromised in patients and so that you're really not getting a fully informed consent. And I was just going to add, Rochelle, that with regards to informed consent, how it gets played out on a day-to-day basis in, in the hospital, in clinics, is that we often just default to informed consent as a signature, as a almost like a kind of a ritual. And I think what I would like for listeners to, to walk away with is this notion that you know, informed consent really is about just having a conversation about um, giving patients this opportunity to be partners in their healthcare and to understand what's happening to them and what are some ways that clinicians can help them and and given the, the freedom to make choices, um, uh, but being a guide along that process. And I, I think that's something I would want people to kind of think about more seriously and getting away from informed consent as a as a necessary legal ritual but more as a this kind of hopefully richer conversation that we can have. Kayon, I love that. The language of informed consent as a legal ritual. I to me that resonates with the default viewpoints that I often hear from our ethics committee members. Appreciation to our guests and listeners on this episode of the Ethics Lab Essentials podcast. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.